morning, church family. What a great joy to be together in the presence of God. Amen. Amen. What a, what a special, sweet moments of worship we've been able to share. My name is Libin Abraham, and I get the joy of being the campus pastor at a Missouri City location, which is where I'm usually at. And the last two services, we got to join together in multiple campuses around God's Word and be one church to be soon in three locations. Amen. We're pretty excited about what God's doing. Let's give God a huge clap offering this morning for what he's up to in our life and in our church. It's a joy for me to share from God's word this morning. I want to tell you a quick story about a, a family in Kyrgyzstan, which is in Central Asia. Uh, it's a family that is serving on mission. And I heard about their story of how they came to know Christ. And it was just a profound, unusual story. The young man in the story is Adar. And he tells about how his family was radically changed by God. Adar and his brother were sleeping out on the streets every night. There was no hope to be had, no light in their life. His dad was an alcoholic, a drug addict, and his mom was dying of cancer. And in those days, Christianity and Kyrgyzstan were illegal, and the Bible was illegal. One day, Adar's dad is walking on the main street and needs to use a restroom, so he steps into a public restroom and uses a restroom. And in those days, because the Bible was legal, they gathered all the Bible and took the pages out of the scriptures and used it as toilet paper in public restrooms. Sadar's dad that day leans over to dry his hands or whatnot, and he grabs a few pages of the scriptures. And his eyes land on a passage in the New Testament that talks about the kingdom of God. He's reading the rest of the page and realizes, I want to know more about this. What is this about? And so he takes all the pages of the scriptures that were there on that restroom, in that restroom. I feel bad for the guy that followed him. There were no napkins to be around. But he took it all, hid it, took it to his house and read Mostly the entire New Testament that was in the restroom. And he came to the conclusion, I got to know more. Who was this Jesus? I want to know the whole story. So he goes on a search to find some Christian in Kyrgyzstan. And in the course of the next few days, he finds one Christian who actually owned the Bible. So he lends Adar the scriptures and he reads it from cover to cover over the next few days. And at the end of reading the Bible, he makes the statement of surrender to the Lord. And he said this prayer, Jesus, I have read this whole book and all of it I can see your power and I want you to be the Lord of my life. So here's my life, take it, act in my life. Adar's dad went and found his two sons. Adar and his brother became followers of Jesus, were baptized. Their mom began to follow Jesus. And today, this entire family is serving as church planners in the southern part of Kyrgyzstan. Isn't it pretty amazing? Come on, let's give God a huge clap offering. I tell you that story because God often meets people in the most unexpected places. When you least expect it, God is actually present. And you're here today, I'm here today as a follower of Christ, not because we were so great at pursuing God, but because he was so great at pursuing us. You'll never hear a more shocking statement than this reality that the God of the universe has been, is, and will always be pursuing you. He's calling you by name. He knows where you're at. He knows who you are. And he's inviting you. He's wooing you to himself. And every single one of us in this room has had or is in the middle of a runaway story. Maybe we're running from life, 
Maybe we're running from God. Maybe we're running from family. We're running from our exes. Maybe we're running from whatever in the world we can imagine. Maybe out of guilt and shame. Maybe from the church you're just saying, I want nothing to do with the church. And you're running for many reasons. Some of us run because we have had no other choice but to run. Someone close to us wounded us, hurt us in the deepest part, and something was broken. And out of shame, out of whatever reason, you feel like you can't be around them anymore. So you run and you flee as far as you can, unable to trust. Though there are a thousand runaway stories in this room, there is one God who pursues us all the same. And the truth is that God often takes our runaway places and makes it a meeting place to have a profound encounter with him that forever changes us, alters who we are for the rest of our life. And today we're going to step into a story in the Old Testament, a narrative about a runaway man, a runaway fugitive by the name of Jacob. To catch you up, uh, up to speed, Abraham, the father of our faith, had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob lived true to his name, a deceiver, a liar, a cheat, a supplanter. Once Jacob tricked his older brother Esau for a bowl of soup and got his birthright. I mean, that must have been some good gumbo, tomato basil, I mean, broccoli and cheese. That must have been really good. His twin brother Esau, they're twins, and he tricks him and gets a birthright. Another time, he deceives his elderly dad. I mean, come on, man, you don't trick your own dad. And gets his final blessing reserved for Esau by pretending to be Esau. And he gets the inheritance. He gets a blessing. He gets his last blessing from his dad. And when Esau finds out, he is so furious. He is so mad. And Esau decides that he's going to kill Jacob. Now, your brother probably told you that he wanted to kill you. But he didn't really mean it. Come on, right? But Esau meant it. And what does Jacob do? He runs away. He flees home. He's a runaway fugitive caught in the crosshairs of his brother Esau. And today in this narrative we're looking at, there are three scenes that we're going to be jumping into, three scenes to kind of journey through. And you can flip to your first, in, the inside page of your notes. And that's where we're actually going to begin today. And the first scene is simply this, a runaway's reality. A runaway's reality. This is going to be Jacob's reality in the story. So verse 10 picks up the story like this. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. The town from which Jacob is from is called Beersheba. And the town that he's running away to is called Haran. And the distance between these two cities is 500 miles. Good luck, Jacob. That's a long ways away. But Jacob is so desperate, he's going as far as humanly is possible to go. And now he's traveled 70 miles and comes to a certain place, which we'll later find out its name. But he's traveled all day on foot and comes to a certain place. A certain place. You can underline that word there, a certain place. It kind of repeats itself in the story. And here he is tired, he is hungry, he's thirsty, he's been traveling for 70 miles in the thick of the heat. His feet are probably blistered. I mean, there are no Nikes or Adidas in those days. You've got some sandals at best. He's been walking on foot. And now the sun is setting, so he decides to call it a night. He doesn't even have a jacket or a coat to roll up as his pillow, so he finds a stone and sleeps on it. 
first of all, Jacob is isolated. He's alone, isolated. If you think about it, Jacob has never been alone. I mean, he has his entire family that he lived with. And back in the days, your family was not like two kids and half a dog or maybe a cat, which is really half a cat. But um, your family wasn't just a few people near you. It was everybody, your extended family, the workers in the home, the servants, they all camped out together. He's been around people his whole life. In fact, even in the womb, who was there with him? His twin brother Esau. He's never been alone, but here in the scene, he is all alone. No dad, no mom, no family, no friends, no support system. All alone. But not only is Jacob all alone and isolated, second of all, Jacob is in the dark. He's in the dark. The narrator is careful to let us know that the sun has set. I mean, until now, at least Jacob has had the warmth of the sun moving him forward. He's had the rays of daylight illuminating his path. But now all light has been removed. All that Jacob has is the dusk of the dark. Alone in the dark. Third of all, not only is Jacob alone and in the dark, he's alone with his own thoughts. Alone with his own thoughts. With no light to gaze at, no people to talk to, what does he have? He is ambushed with the stinging memories of his regret, his remorse, of his guilt. He's thinking about the people that he's hurt, cheated, deceived. I mean, the reality is that his brother wants to kill him. He has tricked his own dad. He'll never see his mom again. This is where Jacob is at. And guess what? He knows that all of this is his own doing. He's in this predicament because of the choices he has made. This is the certain place that Jacob is at. I wonder this morning, have you been to that certain place in your life? To that kind of a reality, alone in the dark, ambushed by your own thoughts? The people that you never thought would leave, left? The dreams and hopes you gave your entire life to comes crashing down and now you're running away, but you're running alone. No one around you. That's what anxiety feels like. You feel like there's a dark cloud hovering over you. You can't seem to get out of it. That's the choking grip of depression. You can't seem to find a hope for tomorrow. The psalmist put it like this in Psalm 88, verse 18. You have taken from me friend and neighbor, and darkness is my closest friend. <laughs> We've all been there. Maybe you're there now. A runaway, trying to find home somewhere, and all you can see is a hopeless path covered in the dusk of the dark. That's scene number one. Jacob's reality, our reality, and the moments we're running. But then there's scene number two, which is God's revelation. God's gracious revelation. This is when the clouds begin to part and God begins to speak and he has something to say to the runaway. And the first thing we realize in this scene is that God pursues the runaway with his presence. He pursues Jacob. He pursues you and I in our runaway state with his presence. Notice verse 12. He had a dream as Jacob is settling in for the night. Using a stone as a pillow, he's got a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And there above it stood the Lord. There above was God. 
Jacob thought he was all alone, isolated in the dark, but little did he know that this moment had been orchestrated for God to finally get his attention. And actually, he's right in the middle of God's plan. He's where God wants him to be. And in this vision, there's a stairway with angels going up and down the stairway. One author put it like this, here in the middle of the night, God is conducting commerce between heaven and earth. Jacob is tired. He is sleeping. He's resting, but God is working. Because there is never a shut-eye moment for God. Psalm 121 puts it in these words, verse 3, God who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Some of you need to hear this this morning. When you rest, God works. When you rest, God works. Sometimes we buy into this idea that it's all on me. I've got to do it. I've got to build more. I've got to earn more. I've got to create. I've got to produce because it's all contingent on me and what I'm able to do. But actually, it's when you take your foot off the pedal, remove your hands off the steering wheel and say, God, I'm resting in you, that God does his greatest work. Amen? That's where in the thick of the darkness, the dreams are birthed. And here... God needed Jacob to be in this moment to get Jacob's attention. He's not running. He's not deceiving. He's not scheming. He's resting, and here he has a vision of God because God does his greatest work in the darkest moments. And in this dream, what is so astonishing is that above the stairway stood the Lord. Some of the translations you may have takes that preposition and says, beside Jacob stood the Lord. And the idea is that God was so near Jacob. And the truth is that actually in that moment, Jacob is astonished, so shocked at the fact that God is there. Because in ancient culture, God was supposed to be a territorial God. Any idea of God they had was that God lived confined to a certain space, to a certain time, uh, to certain geographies. And that you didn't leave the territory you oversaw. So they had their God and, and those people there had their God. And God never transcended time and space. But here Jacob finds God where he does not expect God to be. God is found 70 miles from home. God is found in the middle of the night. God is found standing next to a runaway fugitive. In the most unlikely places there is God. His presence is right there. David got a hold of this reality and he puts it in these words in Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light becomes night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Jacob realized that this God of the Bible transcends space. He transcends time. He crosses over the boundaries and the limits we put for him. And there is no condition that God cannot reach. A little eight-year-old boy by the name of Ryan goes to visit his granddad in the hospital. So Ryan makes a small card for his granddad and takes a sheet of paper and folds it in half. And on the front of this card, Ryan writes, Grandpa, I hope you feel better soon. 
And on the inside, Ryan writes in quotation marks, I will be with you wherever you go, end quotation marks. And in parentheses, Ryan knows that this is a verse in the Bible, but doesn't know where it's found. So instead of writing the reference, he puts, God said that, not me. <laughs> he wanted to make sure that his grandpa knew that he wasn't volunteering himself to stay through the duration of the hospital visit, that he wasn't going to really be home when he got home. But God would be. And the truth is that, man, even the closest relationships in our life will falter, will disappoint. Everything we thought would be permanent at some point, there's a gap, there's a hole, and we wonder, where is God? But can I tell you, your God never leaves you. Your God never forsakes you because your God is not afraid of the dark. There is no condition that repels him because his pursuit is not contingent on your condition. And I want you to grab a hold of this reality. God does not run away from the runaways. God doesn't run when we run. He stays, he pursues, he follows, he invites, he woos you closer to himself because his presence is found in the most unexpected places. Second of all, God pursues the runaway with his protection. God pursues Jacob. He pursues us with his protection. In this vision that Jacob has, God begins to speak. But what God says is not what Jacob expected to hear. God begins to open his mouth and he speaks. I mean, what would you say to a deceiver, a liar, a cheat, someone you knew has just stolen inheritance? We're thinking of words that probably can't even be said in church. We're thinking of some terrible words. And that's what Jacob expected to hear from a holy God. But notice what God has to say to this runaway, lying, cheat. Verse 15, I am with you, and I will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. That's what God has to say. Jacob thought God was going to pay him back, but instead, God was going to win him back. He was going to bring him back. Jacob thought that God was going to bring up his past, but instead, God brought up his future. Jacob thought that God was going to recount all of his mistakes and his failures and his sin, but instead God begins to recount all of his promises, all of his love for Jacob, that he's not going to leave him. Jacob thought that God was going to open up his wounds and hurt him deeper, but instead God brings healing. This is what God says to you, and there are some of you today, you're wondering if this is a safe place. If you come back to church, if you come back to God, what would he say? What will he treat me as? How will these people around this room treat me? I want to tell you this is a safe place. That's not pointing to your past, but that's pointing to your future. Because you are not defined by your sin. You are not defined by your failure. You are defined by the promises of God. Who he says you are is what we see you as. And here... Jacob hears the most unexpected words of God's protection over him. And God doesn't give him what he deserves. He gives him what is better. And he doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us what is better, which is called grace. Accept it in him. God pursues us with his presence. He pursues us with his protection. And lastly, what you have is God pursuing Jacob with his promise. With his promise. Notice the the level of the promise of God for this runaway fugitive. 
In verse 13, God says, there above it stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. He thought he was cursed, but now he's going to be a channel of blessing through you and your offspring. I am with you, will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. Get a hold of this. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. But in this moment, God begins to recount to Jacob the same promise God gave to Abraham the hero of our faith, the father of our faith. And here God begins to recount to Jacob the same promises that were for your fathers and forefathers are for you. God is saying, you have not disqualified yourself from my hand. You have not disqualified yourself from my promises. And do you notice here that the promises of God speak directly to the point of his need? The promises of God speak to the point of his need. Jacob is thinking, I could never be right with God again. I could never get it right. But God comes to him and says, I'm your Lord. I'm with you. I will be with you forever. Jacob is thinking, I have no place to call home. I have nothing in my possession. All I've got is a stone I'm sleeping on. But God comes to him in his point of lack and says, Jacob, this very land you're sleeping on is going to be yours. Jacob is isolated in the dark with no people around him, no family, but God speaks to his point of emptiness and he says this to Jacob, actually Jacob, your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. They will spread from the east to the west. What God is doing to Jacob is assuring him that as great as the problems of his past were, they do not compare They do not hold up to the promises of God's future for him. As great as the devastation of the past were, there is still a future God is inviting you and I to. Maybe you're here and you've quit on God. But today, God is just as committed to you as he has ever been. His promises are still yes and amen. And today I want to tell you that the hope for tomorrow does not simply rest in the strength of your faith, but it rests in the strength of God's faithfulness, of his promises. And let me tell you, great is his faithfulness. There is no shadow of turning with him. He changes not. He will be as he has forever been. His compassions, they fail not. And some of you have heard God calling you to deeper things, maybe to a new ministry, maybe to a new level of impact in the world, maybe to a new relationship, maybe to something that you think is not for you. And you've given God all of these lists of the reasons why you're not the guy to do it, you're not the girl to do it. I'm not qualified. I'm not educated enough. That ship has sailed. I'm too old. I'm too young. You've given God a list of excuses. But get a hold of what God says to Jacob in this moment. I will be with you until I have accomplished what I have promised you. I'm staying the course with you. And you can't step into your destiny, your future, because God's not leaving you until he keeps all. Of his promises. Do I get an amen? amen? 
God pursues this runaway with his presence, with his protection, and with a promise that is mind-blowing. So what do you do when you've encountered God in that kind of a way? How do you respond? What do you do next? And this is scene number three. First you had reality. Second you got revelation and now you've got response. Jacob's reality, God's revelation, and now our most appropriate response. First of all, Jacob worshipped God. He worshipped God. Notice the next verse, verse 16. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Jacob is rubbing his eyes awake and he remembers very vividly everything he just saw in his vision. It's not like my dreams that I cannot recollect. But he remembers every detail of what he just saw because he wakes up as a radically changed, transformed man. He remembers what he saw and experienced. So he's got a whole new perspective, a whole new vision. He wakes up transformed by the living God. And here in this moment, having met with God, he responds in worship and adoration. Let me tell you, when anyone in the scriptures encountered God, all that they were left with is an indescribable sense of awe and wonder at the magnitude of God's greatness and how powerful he was and how pure and holy he was. There was not a single man or woman who met God, encountered God, and left the same. No one ever thought that God was boring or irrelevant. No, they were drastically changed by their encounter, by their meeting with God. Moses sees God on Mount Sinai and he is hiding his face because he can't look at the glory and the holiness of God. Job encounters God after questioning him for chapters. And what does he say? My ears had heard of you, but now that my eyes have seen you, I'm going to repent in ashes. Isaiah gets a glimpse of God's glory and his only response is, woe is me, I'm ruined. Daniel gets a glimpse of God's glory and he falls into a deep state of unconsciousness with his face planted into the ground. The disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration see a glimpse of the Son of Man, of Jesus in his glory, his face shining brighter than the sun on its hottest day and they fall in full terror of his glory and awe. The disciple John in Revelation, when he sees the Son of Man standing among the lampstands, falls as if though he was dead. Those are very appropriate responses of worship to God. They're not extraordinary, but very normal and ordinary when you encounter an extraordinary God. That's what our heart should feel when we are even in this room today, being in the presence of God, opening up his word, worshiping, communing with the creator of the universe. Because I fear that too often we get so casual when we're in the same awe-inspiring presence of God that we forget that even in this moment, we're not just stepping into an empty space or a big room we're entering into the presence of a king together. That's where we are. May it not be said through our mouths what Jacob says, surely the Lord was here, but I was unaware of it. You don't want to say that. 
God was here, but I neglected him. I was mindless. I was too busy wondering what's for lunch. When is he going to be done? I'm going to make my grocery list for tomorrow. Rather, may we say what Jacob said, how awesome is this place. This is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. That's what this is. There is somebody in this room, maybe down your aisle, across the room somewhere, maybe for the first time, they are approaching the gate of heaven for the first time. They're approaching the gate of eternity for the first time and maybe in this room or in the next step center, they're going to open up their heart and follow Jesus. And when they do, that gate is flung wide open and their eternity is forever secured and their lives are forever drastically changed. So when we are here, may that be the prayer of our heart. God, do something so amazing because this is sacred place. This is a miraculous place we are in. May that be the groaning of our spirit. We're approaching the gate of heaven. Some of you, maybe you don't say you're a runaway, but you have slipped in your obedience to God in some aspect of your life. Maybe it's a purity issue, maybe it's a relationship you're pursuing, some habit that dishonors God. Today, when you've met with God, your only appropriate response is surrender and worship. That your soul is laid open to the Lord and you're saying, God, change me, renew me. I want to be a different man. Our most appropriate response is pure worship. Second of all, Jacob rebranded his environment. He dedicated, he made it sacred. He branded, rebranded his environment. Notice what he says in verse 18. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and he set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. To an outsider who's watching the story, nothing seems different. Jacob seems to be the same man. His place seems to be the same. His environment seems to be the same. Nothing's really changed. But to Jacob, who has encountered God, everything is different. And nothing is the same anymore. So what does Jacob do? He wakes up and takes the stone he's been sleeping on. This stone of guilt, this pillow of remorse, and he pours oil over it. He takes a stone and said, this is not a stone, it's a sacred place. This pillow of my guilt is now a pillar of God's grace. This scrap, this brokenness, this valley, this is where I met God. It was still the same stone, but to a man who met God, it was an entirely different thing. He steps into that city called Luz. And when he fell asleep, this is just another city. But having met God, he wasn't on the HOA. He didn't have the right to do so. But he renamed the city. Luz is an irrelevant Canaanite town that nobody knew of. But Jacob, because he met God there, calls it Bethel, the house of God. And for centuries to come, generations would come to Bethel and find an altar dedicated to Yahweh. What is Jacob doing? He falls asleep in a hopeless place and wakes up in a holy ground. Falls asleep on a pillow of guilt, wakes up to a pillar of grace. This is what it's saying to us. Are you willing to see your situation differently even if nothing has yet changed? Are you willing to meet with God in such a way that you view life differently? Are you willing to rebrand your workplace Maybe people are still the same, but I'm stepping in on Monday with a whole new eyes of faith. God, this is sacred place. This cubicle is sacred to you. 
This relationship, although it seems to be falling apart, my marriage, although it seems to be in scraps, I'm going to anoint it with oil, with the promises of God, pursuing the presence of God. Your community, your school, your neighborhood, what have you saw that place that seems barren and unfulfilling through the eyes of grace and through the eyes of faith? And you said, God, if you're here, this is not a stone, it's sacred. This is not just hopelessness, it's holy unto you. Are you willing to see your life differently before something changes? Because what you realize lastly is that Jacob trusted in God before things got better. He worshiped God. He trusted in God before he saw the results. Verse 20, um, verse 20 onwards puts it like this. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return to safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. In the original language, in the Hebrew here, this statement reads less like an if-then conditional statement, but more as a statement of trust. And Jacob is saying, seeing that you'll be with me, seeing that you will fulfill your promises in my life, God, all that I have, I'm giving it to you. I'm surrendering it. The stone is now a pillar. I'm going to give it all to you as a worship, as a place of trust towards you. I love the statement that I recently heard, and it goes like this. When you praise God after God comes through, that's gratitude. But when you begin to praise God before he comes through, that's called faith. It's easy to praise God after the storm, after the issue, after your hopelessness. But in the midst of it, in the middle of it, in your darkest moment, if you can worship, if you can lean deeper into God and you can trust him in a whole new level, that's called faith. And today I am praying and believing that faith would rise up to see things differently, to see people, your neighborhood, your community entirely differently before it even changes, trusting that God is faithful. Reality, revelation, response. In 1971, Led Zeppelin wrote a song called Stairway to Heaven. It was a song about a rich lady attempting to buy a stairway to heaven. But through the song, she realizes it's a hopeless attempt. It's futile, worthless, because she can't afford the stairway to heaven. Can't be good enough, can't earn it, can't work for it. That is a song of futility and grief because... There is no stairway to heaven. It doesn't exist. But I'm here to tell you that there is a stairway from heaven. There is no stairway to heaven, but there is a stairway from heaven. And what Jacob sees in this stairway is not a stairway from earth to heaven that expects him to climb up, but it's rather a stairway from heaven to earth where God climbs down. So what happens 2,000 years after Jacob has this vision? Through the lineage of Jacob comes the final and full revelation of God. His name is Jesus. And this is how, by the way, God fulfills his promise to Jacob that through his offspring he would bless the world because Jesus, the Messiah, came out of the offspring of a lying, cheating, deceiving man. And when Jesus came on the scenes of planet Earth visibly in a body, 
Jesus looks at a man named Nathaniel, an Israelite, who knew the whole story of Jacob. And in John chapter 1, verse 52, this is what Jacob, this is what Jesus says to Nathaniel. Truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Does that sound familiar? Jesus goes to Nathaniel and says, you've heard about the stairway from heaven. You've heard about Jacob's vision. Well, I'm here to tell you that you're looking at him. I'm the fulfillment. I'm the full realization of a bridge between heaven and earth. I've come down and meet with you, Nathaniel. Some of you wish, man, I just wish I had a dream. I wish I had a vision of God in this dark moment. But can I tell you, something better has happened. God didn't just come in a dream. He came in flesh. And he pursued you. He pursued me to the point of his crucifixion. The Bible says we were alienated, stuck in darkness, no hope for tomorrow. But yet while we were still sinners, he died for us, rose from the dead. And today he's inviting you, pursuing you to himself. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every stairway to heaven that the world promises will be marked with grief and futility. Every stairway to hope, meaning, purpose that this world offers you, marked with guilt, grief, and futility. But the stairway that Jesus is from heaven is marked with grace and faithfulness. Just stand with me this morning. There are some of you in this morning service, God is calling you to a point of decision. Will you stop running from and will you run into the pursuit of God? Seems like you've entered an unexpected season of your life, but could this be the place where God gets a hold of your heart? And you know it. You go to bed at night on the pillow of your guilt, remorse, uncertainty, and you have no hope. But today, what if you exchange your heart, your life, and surrender to King Jesus? God is revealing himself to you. He's saying, come follow me. Watch what I'll do in your life. Some of you, you've been slowly drifting, slipping away. Maybe you're not running, but you're walking away. You're slipping away. God's calling you to full surrender, to a worship of him that trusts him completely before you see the results. There's some of you who've got people in your life that are running away. I'm asking you, don't give up on them because God hasn't given up. Keep praying, keep inviting them, keep believing that their lives can be different. And when you leave here today, you're entering a place differently with a whole new eyes to see faith, to see hope springing forth from the deepest, darkest places. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we hear your voice. We sense your presence in this sacred place. Do in us what only you could do. Open our eyes to see you at work in the darkest and loneliest of places. You never run away from the runaways. So today we pray that someone in this room comes to the gate of heaven and says yes to following Jesus. That those under the sound of my voice would give their heart completely, fully, to the love and pursuit of Jesus Christ, and we will never be the same again. Maybe for some, God, that need to be a part of this family, this church community, may today be the day that they're stopping to run alone. They're not running alone anymore, but they're running together towards your purpose, towards your plans for them. 
Have your way in this moment of decision. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.